Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Food and Psych podcast. This is a special episode featuring a panel discussion on the state of diversity, racism and cultural representation in the food industry. The catalyst for this discussion was a series of incidents that took place in July 2018, when members of London's Southeast Asian and food communities criticised a series of racist videos and social media posts from white British chef Sean Beagley. After initial requests for them to be taken down were not actioned, the content was brought to the attention of one of his employers, Andy Oliver, who's chef proprietor of Somsar, a successful London restaurant specialising in Thai food. It then became apparent that Andy and other prominent London food personalities were already aware of some of this content and, in some cases, had endorsed it. What followed was a huge amount of anger, confusion and disappointment, and how people who were preparing and profiting from the food of Southeast Asia could at the same time be so denigrating of the culture and the people. This incident also raised other concerns about how the food and culture of minority groups is used and represented in London and the food industry in general. Following this, Adam Coughlin, the editor of the Eater London Food website, hosted a panel discussion on the events and the issues it raised. I was invited to be a member of that panel, along with identity theorist Anna Sulan Massing, food and culture writer Jonathan Nunn, and chefs Asma Khan of Darjeeling Express and Andy Oliver of Somsar. The event was not recorded on the night, but the panel reconvened at my London office for this special episode. The hope is that these events can be the start of meaningful change and improvement in the treatment and representation of the minority people and cuisines on which so much of the success of the food industry is based. Please join this conversation by adding your thoughts, sharing this podcast and raising these issues when you see them. Thank you. Anna, is the issue of diversity and representation a... Um, a problem that is um, either unique or specific to London, do you think? Do you think that's that there's a particular element of it that's, that means we're having this conversation? I think it's, it's a it's UK conversation, um, actually, uh, because I think it's relative to the way the UK understands race, uh, immigration and diversity and representation and identity and all those sort of things, because I, I just don't think that the UK is really addressed ideas of um, post-colonialism or colonialism and, and doesn't really think or understand how food has comes into this island 
and and that history behind it and that the fact that colonialism was so built on food trade whereas I think places like the states um, have dealt with it more because a lot of the colonialism or a lot of the inequalities have happened like you know the, the slave history has been in their on their ground on their land so they've had to be kept to confront it and so have the language might not necessarily be dealing with it well but have some of the language and on that asthma the that, that point about Britain's seeming kind of inability to divorce its colonial past with conversations in the present about food um, how, how do you how do you think we can overcome that like what what needs to happen in the in the, in the public discourse and from you know operators in 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 our industry, the restaurant industry? I mean, the first thing is that, you know, there is a lot of ignorance and this kind of very blinkered view of what happened in the past. And, you know, it was so scary because you saw people talking about, you know, the, the, the great empire, the great empire during the Brexit uh, debate. That is so scary because, you know, it was not the great British empire. It was not a glorious time. And the thing is that the perception still remains uh, and there was silence from those who know better. I, I think that the, the onus is on all of us to talk about colonialism, starting off with our own children um, uh, in schools, because I think that the real problem is that it's not taught in schools. So when, you know, uh, someone who's brown skinned get pushed around and called names, they're not in a position even to understand, to kind of explain to themselves, why is this happening? You know, why am I here and why are they doing this to me? So it's a really serious issue. And when it comes to all of us who are uh, who are slightly more aware of history and are, are aware of food history especially, I think that we there's, our time has come to talk. Jonathan, do you feel that there are structures or institutions that are preventing that discourse from advancing or... It prevent it from even, you know, the conversation even starting, never mind, like, evolve it. Well, I think, I mean, structural racism is just the very basic idea that most structures that are in society are fundamentally racist. Or So you've got uh, the media, the government, and it was really interesting, I mean, when we did the talk, the I'm not too sure if the Jamie Oliver jerk rice thing had happened yet, yeah, just, but just. it had just happened. Um, when that came out, there was no real, and, and Dawn Butler mentioned cultural appropriation, there was no real talk about why that was such a emotional issue for the British Caribbean community. And obviously there's, one is that uh, most British Caribbean chefs get very little representation within the media. Um, so I could just think of one person, Levi Roots, who ended up being on Channel 4 News because it's the only one anyone could ever think of. Mm. But also, bigger than that, was this is coming off something like the Windrush scandal, mm. um, where British Caribbeans have concrete evidence that they're seen as second-class citizens by a very conservative government. So you have to look at racism in the food world and representation within the food world within that wider context so yeah absolutely but do you think that you know the the restaurants themselves and the in the you know the institutions around them such as the you know not not just the media but specifically the food media do you think there are 
there are traits within that within those sort of industries and within those organizations that actually seem to firstly prevent people from actually seeing the problem perhaps because of the makeup of those you know businesses and, and, and institutions and then you know for the same reason they they are then unable to kickstart a conversation about you know why they might sort of come up short when it comes to diversity and representation I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's almost as much of a media problem as it is a restaurant problem. I mean, there's no shortage of restaurants run by people of colour in London. But then you look at what do the media focus on when they talk about restaurants? And you look at even left-leaning newspapers like The Guardian, The Observer. um, You look at the kind of restaurants that they choose to profile. And it's, I mean... There's restaurants in the centre of London, but outside the centre of London, where most uh, where most communities are cooking for themselves, and you have a huge diaspora community, they're very rarely talked about. Um, I think I had a look at um, I think the last hundred reviews from uh, the main major newspapers that includes the Telegraph, the Financial Times, Eden Standard. And I think outside Zone 1 and 2, there were maybe three out of 100 restaurants profiled. And there's this huge swathe of mm. London, which is just being completely ignored by the media. So, yeah, when you talk about um, when you talk about representation and cultural appropriation, it's absolutely a media issue. Yeah. Andy, you as a restaurant, <coughs> obviously, definitely within Zone 1, I think, yeah. Zone 2. Um Obviously, you're not Thai. You're cooking Thai food, um, and there are, you know, there are there are Thai restaurants that aren't in the centre of London, don't have as you know access to the same resources as you, and you know, PR agency, etc. Um, do you think it's just a straightforward case of economics that you have been, you know, the recipient of much more media attention than say, the Heron or Singbori or you know, any not 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 just Thai restaurants, but lots of other um, the restaurants who are cooking food from Southeast Asia that aren't, you know, that don't have the same kind of cachet as you got, you, I suppose, as as dictated by the media. Yeah, um, I think there's definitely some truth in that. Um, I think like representation in the media, you know, is is, is rarely proportionate, and um, we're definitely aware that we've been. Had a level of privilege in terms of slightly being overrepresented, and part of that is, of course, like economics. If you're able to raise the money to uh, open a restaurant in central London, you're naturally going to get a higher footfall. You're going to get a higher turnover, and you're going to be able to afford PR. Um, so there's and there's a lot of good restaurants uh, that have been cooking Thai food for quite a long time before we even existed. Who um, Funnily enough, you only sort of hear about recently, you don't hear about enough, but you've heard about recently because Thai food has become a bit more um, talked about and a bit more kind of, uh, a bit more trendy, if you like. And um, and I don't think that that's, you know, they've always been cooking food of that quality. And, and so it's not entirely, it's definitely not fair that they haven't been talked about. And I think like through all this, definitely sort of recognizing a bit of level of privilege and ignorance in some in some things like uh, definitely when it comes to like racial issues and uh, uh, I kind of thought that they existed in other parts of the restaurant industry and I thought that it's 
because you run a, a nice restaurant where you have nice people where you think that these things can't happen mm. here, there. Uh, and and I think it's just a process of sort of talking to people and realising that, well, of course you wouldn't have seen it because you come from a position of privilege and it might have happened. I mean, something did happen under a watch, but it may have also happened under our noses in other ways that we didn't know about, not just through, in small ways, but also in terms of how you get um, opportunity. Was the idea of cultural appropriation something that you thought about when you opened the restaurant? Were you like familiar with that? I, th- I think, no, not immediately. Like the, the drive to open the restaurant was excitement about food, really. Excitement mm. about a cuisine and passion for the cuisine and wanting to cook it. And, and, and really, like, that was a kind of nice level of naivety almost, I think. But I think once you've opened a restaurant, you then, if you... If you then that naivety can turn into ignorance if you kind of sit on your laurels and think, "Oh, we've got here because you know because of we're we're good enough, you know we're you know we're getting talked about more because we're better than other people and that's what you really have to to sort of guard guard against, I think. Yeah. Um, but but the issue of cultural appropriation is something we've always been kind of ever since that kind of like established restaurant moment we've been conscious of, but this has definitely brought it into a kind of a new light and I think it's you know it comes back to that principle that it's okay to cook another culture's food as long as you do it respectfully mm. and as soon as you fall short of those standards um, you rightly if you cook another culture's food are open to for some you know, pretty serious criticism I'm interested at what point did you or not just you but sort of the management at SOMSA at what point did you realise that the idea of white people cooking Thai food, not that that itself is problematic, but that this could be seen as problematic from such by some people. Yeah, I think we, we had like, a, we did a restaurant residency that was kind of popular and new and it was in Hackney, so it was like, trend is trendy and it was, um, but we were a bunch of like, essentially like young white guys cooking, you know, we had a couple of Thai people in the kitchen, but essentially like a bunch of young white guys cooking Thai food and um, we were on a quick growth curve because it like we we had a pop-up for a year and managed to open a restaurant on the back of that and that was great but as soon as you start thinking about that you could think oh look you know you could see how it looked mm. you could see how it looked and and we, we were always conscious about that but we always you know fell back to the position of look we love the food and we love the culture and we travel there and I've worked in Thailand and learned to speak some of the language and worked in Thai kitchens and stuff and the, the way that we cook the food has always been our principles to try to cook it like you find it in Thailand respectfully, you know, in the way that um, in terms of seasoning, in terms of presentation and not, not to change it too much. And that felt like a kind of comfortable fallback position. But as I say, that's not enough. You just, yeah, you know, and in other ways we've since fallen short of that standard. Um, it seems to me that like, I mean, I think we're going to end up returning back to the initial question about the empire and why Britain occupies such a sort of problematic space when it comes to these issues. But one thing that, you know, I kept hearing after the Jamie Oliver Jerk Rice scandal was people are going to start complaining about Jamie Oliver cooking Italian food next. And I think that obviously, while, you know, to many people seems idiotic, there are definitely some people who are confused about what cultural appropriation actually means. Mm. Um, How, like... First of all, yeah, in very simple terms, what is it and how, how can we ensure that people remain aware of that and, you know... Yeah. I think 
the a very basic definition would be um, so it's when you have two cultures and you have the dominant culture and the minority culture and then the dominant culture takes something and it could be any any element of culture it could be fashion it could be music it could be um, food in this case and then profits from it without due representation um, and there's I mean there's lots of I mean the story of food is a story of cultures taking stuff from each other and you've got um, something like uh, Sicily which is like this amazing uh, a genuine sort of almost equal melting pot of different food influences from Italy, you've got uh, North Africa, um, you've got Arabic influence, Jewish influence, and then you, but then you also have something like, say, um, I mean, my mother's from Goa, and there's a huge Portuguese influence on the cuisine. And that is something very different. That is Portuguese colonizers coming over to Goa and forcing a cuisine on them, or say in uh, Vietnam when you've got banh mi, that's, that's the French forcing a cuisine on someone else. And then you've got other modes of um, of uh, sort of cross-cultural interaction, um, which aren't cultural appropriation, but then you've got something like the Jamie Oliver Jerk Rice thing, and there's other things too, um, which can be described as cultural appropriation. Um, it's not this... Um, it's not just to say someone cooking someone else's cuisine is cultural appropriation. But there is, that's, yeah, I mean, an amazing definition of it. Is there a specific, like, it seems to me that the, 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 the Samsara episode and the, the, you know, Sean Beagley's um, racist videos and Instagram and t- Twitter posts, it seemed to hit very, very hard. It seemed the, the, it seemed to me that there was a particular edge to it, and that there's a there's a historical relationship with Britain and the southeast and Southeast Asia that that lent it a particular sort of toxicity. Do you think? And and it, and, and and the reason I mentioned the Jamie Oliver Joe Rice is I think there's definitely this, a similar sort of problem with Britain and the Caribbean for obvious reasons. Um, I was gonna say I, I want us to know like how that on on that like that that to- toxic toxicity and that how you see the kind of relationship that people have with each other and navigating it mm-hmm. because you come from quite a different perspective of of understanding that sort of relationship people have with each other and and ignoring trying to ignore that it's cultural appropriation and almost talking themselves into it that it's not, mm. or vice versa, that kind of stuff. The, the other, I also <laughs> wanted to ask you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> when something really bad happens, and you know, some something was terrible, uh, Jamie Oliver as well, I think that if a very rapid response and an appropriate response, either, you know, indicating remorse or a kind of an attempt that, you know, I need to understand these things better and sorry I made a mistake and I you know didn't realize I was doing this I think that I mean what do you feel do you think that would have actually you know put the flames out and not allowed because I think the response you know some sort response was awful but also Jamie Oliver took a long time before he said something in this that kind of in that vacuum mm. uh, I think that was that is also very harmful and very painful mm. if you feel that your culture or your religion or your your language and food is being attacked, that you know, 
you it's like a getting slapped again mm. because you get hurt once but that time no that time yeah. that that it takes to say sorry and say an appropriate sorry is very painful and what do you, what mm. did you think about this time that took I think I think the the gap the vacuum is is actually really important and that the problem with long gaps you know on one hand you could say you know people need time to think about what they've done or you know the implication of of the situation but in the absence of a response people can imagine or fantasize or embellish their own understanding of what's going on so in the absence of a response in this situation from Sean then people can come up with their own conclusions he is a racist he absolutely doesn't care he thinks this is hilarious he can whatever the you know implication might be people then end up talking between themselves about what's going on and coming up with a different set of conclusions so in the absence of a of any response you leave a gap for people to fill it you know we we need to fill it and you will fill it with you know either your best assumptions or your worst worst fears um, and so that's one of the problems of a lack of response. It also, I think in this particular case, seemed, and, and having spoken to some of the people who raised the issue with him first and tried to do it privately and all of that stuff, it just seemed as if he didn't care. He didn't care about the pain that was caused or take it seriously. And so that's a kind of repetition of the kind of racism hierarchy or experience which is I don't really care about what you're going through because I'm fine and your personal response to this is is just not important to me at all um so yeah I think I wonder though if equally if a very rapid response had been given whether it had been taken seriously you know you know when people just come out and go oh I'm really sorry sorry didn't mean it Did, whether that just feels flippant and easily dismissed. Like, I, I think what is best and what's needed is something like this, which is where actually people talk, that it's not just an independent set of kind of back and forth apologies, accusations, apologies, accusations, rebuffs of accusations, but a thoughtful discussion about what happened, how it went so wrong, what it means in meaning is the big part. What does it mean that this happened, that it went on for two years, that nobody said anything, that even when it was raised, it was still kind of hushed up, and then it took a bigger response for actually people to coalesce and talk about it. Um, so the meaning is really important. And then actually action, because the risk is that we have a lovely talking shop, everybody talks about how serious it is, but then nothing changes, everybody goes back to their lives the way they were before. I th certainly, I just hearing you then um, talk about the the dynamic of the way the issue kind of came about and like people became aware of it and the very na the nature of Twitter and how things blow up on social media. It was I can on the one hand understand the sort of it's 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 difficult to react to that. Like you don't you, you don't know where it's coming from. Equally, though, I, I do also wonder whether the reaction and the response, not just from Samsar, but from like the industry mm. more widely, was like like you just mentioned, it was going on for you know two years and no one said anything, and it's not as if these um, these acts were were private. So, it, Kimberly, you did an amazing um, Twitter thread in, in, the, in the aftermath about how it might be that something like this could 
kind of happen and go on mm. sort of unchecked for two years so yeah I'd just love to hear mm. the reasons the reasons why from a psychological perspective how those are you know how, how that can happen yeah I, I, fundamentally it starts from a position not just in, in in human terms but I think particularly with Brits is that we don't like awkwardness <laughs> and we don't like difficult conversations and race prejudice of any kind uh but particularly racism i think particularly now is an awkward conversation and it's it's unpleasant for both sides it's unpleasant for people of color who are invariably told that they are either exaggerating or whining or playing the race card or, or kind of victimizing themselves um, but who also we just want to get on with our lives and not have to keep justifying our existence all the time um, so and and not being made to be the diversity voice in whatever industry you're you're in but then it's awkward for dominant cultures to then have to think well, do I have to think about my own behaviour? Can I talk about this without being attacked or called something that I don't think I am? And and the thing that we all find difficult, which is possibly looking at our own shortcomings and our own failures, like none of us like doing that. We all find it very unpleasant. We all avoid it as much as possible um, and find ways to deny it, push it away, minimise it, distract ourselves from it. Um, so it's an uncomfortable and unpleasant conversation on both sides, which is why it's avoided. And I think very much what happened with Sean's original posts, which were, they weren't ambiguous in their content, uh, was was just, was a kind of cognitive dissonance. So it can't be what it is. I don't want to think that someone I like is doing something objectionable. So I'll just... I'll assume the best and ignore the reality of, of what I'm seeing. Um, and, and also just kind of a turning a blind eye. Look, it's been up there for a while. No one else has said anything. I'll just kind of um, dilute the responsibility to everybody else who must have seen it. And so it's not my responsibility anymore. So there's a kind of um, a denial of personal responsibility and a turning of a blind eye and a, a kind of sense of cognitive dissonance of, of wanting to avoid the discomfort of these conflicting states of mind where someone you like, admire, work with is doing something which actually, if you stop to think about it, is really unpleasant and objectionable. Mm. Andy, is, does that... Do you, yeah. do you recognise that? Is that? Yeah, I do. I think a lot of that's, a lot of that's you know, fair and, and relevant. Um, you know, from, from our perspective, there's definitely some hard questions to ask ourselves about, you know, how some, how this was allowed to go on so long, someone was allowed to work for us for so long while having content online that was like this, um, and there's and, and this you know there's no excuses for that from our perspective. But there are there are some reasons um, that you know I think I think definitely one of them is that actually Sean in the building was not none of that that stuff ever came out of his mouth in the building, and it wasn't the person that we knew in the building. Uh, but that makes it. That's, that doesn't, you know, that's, it's still our responsibility and it's, it's not true to say that we hadn't seen some of his content. Um, we hadn't seen all of it, but we certainly had seen some of it and, and any of it is enough. Um, so yeah. there's, there's definitely hard questions and I think there is a bit of that kind of like, 
Englishness. You know, everyone else thinks it's okay. So just double checking your assumptions and and that Sean's everyone thinks that Sean's alright. You know, everyone in the building from from you know of all different backgrounds thinks that Sean's alright and he's quiet and he's not. He doesn't work with us. He works with us one or two days a week, and sometimes he's not around for a month or two. Uh, and so we, you know, it wasn't that he was in the kitchen and this stuff was coming out of his mouth all the time. But equally, you know, just seeing one of those posts um, should be enough to raise alarm bells. And you know, understanding why you didn't, you know, leads you to ask some hard questions about. You know your level of inbuilt ignorance or prejudice, and, and and so on and so forth. And so, like, since all this has happened, it's been a you know it's been a bit of a journey of understanding for us. Yeah, I mean, in those in the two and a half months since it's happened, you, you know, you you've talked about these hard questions as a as a business, and you know, from a kind of cultural perspective within the company, have you and your co-owners sort of arrived at any answers? Yeah, so there's some things that we put in place which seem like you know that aren't aren't answers exactly, but they are ways in which it might not happen again, or if we had done them a little while ago, it might not have happened, or something of this nature, whether it's racism or bullying or misogyny or or just unpleasantness, like might not happen. And one of those is like kind of having a kind of speak up sort of policy and diversity policy which sets out your principles but also allows people in the building to um, know who they can go and talk to if they feel um, hurt or offended or marginalised and what will be done about it and that might not be talking to us that's actually talking to someone who is seen as a more neutral presenter so we've got a kind of anonymous email system uh, and a a nominated speak up kind of representative um, and we're going to be doing some like diversity training. Um, I was going to do it just myself, but actually we're going to get someone in and get a few managers sat down and, and my colleagues who run, run the restaurant with um, to kind of, you know, see what we can learn and see, you know, I think everyone does have a level of uh, unconscious bias, conscious or unconscious bias. And so you've got to examine that a bit. Um, Asma, the, Andy's talking very much about like, reactive sort of you know you know fair play but reactive policy uh, implementation since you've opened your restaurant you've you know whether by accident or deliberate you've you've ended up with a specific, very quite specific and you know if not unique culture in your own restaurant was that you know an all female kitchen for um the avoidance of doubt on this podcast um <laughs> did you um did you how how did that come about? Did you was that something that you kind of thought of, something you wanted? What how did it happen? It I never planned that. You can't plan these kinds of things because you've never seen it. So you know, for us, I hadn't. They found me, and then they didn't let go. I've I've known these women for years, and so it was this time. There is it's like you know the links that you make of a necklace, that you know we just linked with each other. It was never planned. And it is an absurd idea to think that you could have an all-women kitchen, you know, women in their 50s and 60s, you know, doing 16-hour shifts. I mean, it's madness. You don't plan these kind of things. They happen. They happen because there's this, there is passion. And there's, you know, you, there's that calling. And for them, it was liberation. I mean, just a few days ago, someone came to interview me. And she was just stunned because it was a really long shift. 
She was hearing the women sing. They, they were singing because they were hurting. And it is this song that they start singing, and I know they're all getting tired. But to lift them up, they sing this rhythmic song. And then you see all of them working together. That's an incredible team. They just got together, and then, you know, I'm just one of them. And, uh, yeah, I hadn't planned it, and it's worked out brilliantly because I, they used to work in my house with me, and I knew them for a long time. And they did things that were very tough, you know, nannies. One of some of them worked in A&E, uh, in Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. Uh, two of them, you know, had very difficult domestic situations. But for them, here they were free. They still feel that, and they sing like they're free. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it must be that you have created the conditions for that to flourish. Yes. No, and I, I, I've, I have, and I've, I've really. What I do, I spend a lot of time telling each one, and I tell them as a team as well how much I value them. I tell them every day. I do that, and I think that it's so important. And every day, I see their eyes light up. Because I, my mother used to do this to women, but that was very special because the people who worked in my mother's kitchen, she had a similar business, a restaurant business, and catering. These were uh, women from the red light area who had been abandoned by their husbands. She tried, she saved them, got their girls out. And because they never, no one ever told them, I, I, I like the way you cook, I like the way you do this, because everybody just used them. Amma used to always say this to them, and I realized that, you know, it, it it doesn't, it's just such a nice thing to do. And they tell me that they like something about me. Invariably, they tell me that I should have combed my hair and come. I tell them that bit you're not allowed to say. But we tell each other things that we like that the other person did. And I think this has allowed us to feel secure. This is a safe space for us in the kitchen. What, what, sorry. <laughs> um, but what, one of the things, that idea of the kitchen being a space of belonging, and I think across the restaurant industry, well, restaurants become places of belonging. Like it doesn't, it, you know, it, it can, or a great restaurant does, um, in the kitchen, front of house. It's a team, it's intense. And one of the things that sort of shifts slightly with, with um, restaurants or, or people of colour, who, who cook is that they're also cooking their belonging, they're cooking their identity, yeah. which is a very different thing in somewhere like Somsa, where you're cooking because it's an, a, a passion that you've learned as opposed to cooking to put down roots, to belong, to find a place in a new space. So, so this sort of racism that came out you know, recently, uh, and has has always ha- happened. It's a, it's it's super personal, and it's it's quite a, a physical um, feeling that I don't think if you're if you're not cooking your home and cooking your sense of belonging every day, it's really hard to understand. And yeah. I think that well, that's where the, the 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 wider community and the industry couldn't understand why this pain was there. Especially, uh, and it was difficult. Yeah. Especially, I think it's an issue for um, for second generation immigrants mm. as well. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, food yeah. is one way that you connect sort of home. connect. Yeah, exactly. You connect to your identity that you've kind of lost through yes. immigration. So, 
I mean, for example, I don't know what the Caribbean community in the Caribbean thought of the jet crash thing. Um, maybe lots of hilarious memes. <laughs> I, 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 saw, I saw a lot, a lot of them on Twitter. Yeah. Um, but that is a more emotional issue for yeah, the British yes. Caribbean community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that, it's, yeah. again, it's like, yeah, it's, every day you're cooking your belonging, regardless of kind of, you know, third, fourth or whatever generation. You're, you're, it's, it's such a, a, a physical um, grounding and regrounding and repetitive but creative um, sense of identity. Is that... <laughs> but I think one of the other kind of thinking errors that occurred and was one of the reasons why so much of the restaurant industry was silent about this incident in these posts was that they were looking at it as one incident or one series mm. of posts. Whereas if you have been on the receiving end of racism, it's never just one incident. It's always a resurrection of having your food being made fun of when you're at school, having people question where you were from, having people look at you or not serve you or serve you last in a, you know, wherever you are. It's impossible to look at a racist incident as in, as a separate entity. It is always the latest incident in a history of abuse that might have stretched back even before you were born, you know. I have stories of, of my grandma being racistly abused in London and that becomes part of my story of how people see me. And so it's always a much bigger issue and I think that's part of what got lost mm. in this. Everyone's like, oh, it's just a few videos. Well, not, not, not at all. That, and that to me was the, the most alarming thing about the reaction slash non-reaction from the sort of quote-unquote establishment restaurant industry slash food media it was like you know what's the big deal it's this guy is is an arsehole obviously he's been sacked it's you know it's it's over we you know we don't want to hear anything else about it and actually that was I felt that that as well as the the whole resurfacing of, of Sean's material was distressing that was also like super frustrating from you know as I understood it from the communities that were, that were affected, like Anna, do, that that was you know you had to leave Twitter basically in the yeah. aftermath of it. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, exactly. That that sort of linear. Yeah, it was dealt with really linear, and and as Kimberly said, it's not linear. And your 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 past, your parents, your every you know that's part of your present. You're really those stories, and so that it, it's it's not a linear process that gets finished. And I just I couldn't be there because all I could hear was these people saying saying that yeah but it's been dealt with so we don't want to listen anymore so that's like people don't want to listen to me I'm, my voice is no longer important because what I'm saying is like well it doesn't feel over it's not important but also people saying things like but it doesn't happen in my restaurant even though I'm saying yeah but yeah but it will and it does I've worked in nice and that absolute uh, refusing to listen just because they think they're all over it or know it or, or feel that. Yeah, and as well, you know, to me at least, from certain people on you know on Twitter and stuff, it was like this is this is bad PR for our industry. Yeah. And it, and, and, and and Jonathan, I know that frustrated you immensely. I mean like the aftermath of this and the aftermath of um, 
the jerk rice thing was just a very, very I mean Twitter's a frustrating place at the best of times <laughs> but it's extremely frustrating because with Sean Beagley you can sort of you can see his stuff is unambiguously racist and you can sort of write that off or write I don't want to say write him off but you can sort of say you are a racist yeah but then you've got people, I mean, there are people who I'm on really friendly terms with, people I admire, and then I'm reading their tweets and there's this complete lack of comprehension about, like, the wider issues. And I'm not going to say that they're racist, because I don't think they are racist, but they there's certainly, like, a lack of sort of empathy or understanding and a very little desire to explore this beyond sort of saying this is one bad apple mm. um we're all okay and i mean with the jerk writing it's very interesting i saw um i saw someone who under there was just before that there was a thing with mns um and mns selling a ready-made you it was, it was just after it was, it was just after, after. Was yeah after? yeah yeah it was after because i, got I, I to do, yeah I saw someone who had like a very perfect understanding of why that was, um, why that might be an issue, completely not get why the jerk rice thing was an issue. And it's, it's pretty much the same issue. Um, what I, was I, the, I missed this, what was the MS thing? It was, um, there's a ready-made... Ready-made Bengali, Bengali, Bengali uh, something, but using no Bengali yeah, traditional it was, ingredients. It was a nightmare because basically, uh, you know, it just they just said Bengali, uh, you know, for us, uh, I'm half Bengali. You know, these spices are sacred. Yeah. And the thing is that you know the problem is that you know you you know we walk in the skin we have, but we don't the spices and the food and the aromas, and the taste and the flavors that stay. It's not so visible. It is as sacred as our skin, yeah. and that is what I felt when all of this happened with Somsa. Atul Kocher and, you know, another person who said something which is really unacceptable. The problem is that, you know, till you're, it's not about food. It is about you because, you know, you are so used to being called names because of, you know, you being brown, black, any other color because of the way you look. But when your food is attacked, it is, it's something in your soul that is so hard for people to understand. And I'm glad that, you know, this has happened because I think that it just does show that there are a lot of people around, you know, Twitter has lots of idiots, but there are a lot of people around who really care. You know, we've had this discussion. It was great to be on that panel. It was wonderful. I think it was just, I, you know, even if I had just like, you know, I had said nothing, I was just so pleased that there were all these people who cared enough. I was brilliant that you came as well. Because I think that this is how, you know, things can change. Because, you know, I can't tell you how sacred my food is to me. Because, you know, you might think I'm silly and not understand that. But at least I have to, I have the right to stand there and defend my food. And from attack. And this way I also defend myself. It's linked. I found it really interesting that the Atoll Kutcher thing wasn't a bigger story. I mean, that is a huge story, a chef being sacked for Islamophobia. Yeah. But no one really knew how to write about it because they had no understanding of sort of India's own 
sort of race relations. Yes, and, and I but, but stayed that, out of that for. But is that a, that a lack of like wanting to fight? Like I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think no one knew. No one. I, there are very few food writers. I think you know I mean. how to talk about that. Yeah, because that that is a complicated Just issue. Absolute yeah. ignorance, and and the thing is that I don't want to step into this, but uh, I think the the right thing happened, and you know, Benares might lose its Michelin star. Uh, you know, it's, they did the right thing because I think that as you know, I, I'm a restaurant owner. It's on my watch whatever happens with people who are mm. working with me who are linked to me. The absolute buck stops with the restaurant owner because if you make it very clear to everybody and even to your star chef, that if you are a bigot and you are racist, you go. It kind of gives that strength to the colored people who are there in that kitchen, the black kitchen porter at the back of the kitchen who everyone ignores and shouts at at peak service uh, and often are very racist too. But it's so important. It is very important that the owners come and say everyone is equal and you know that, in the end, Benares had all kind of worked out. But yeah, I mean, just people don't understand this. They, they took their sweet time. It, it seems to me as, as what you know, bad people are you know the biggest problem here in this debate, for sure. The for me, the reason it's such a big issue, um, though, is that there seems to me. Uh, there's a there's a fundamental like misunderstanding or at least lack of like careful understanding of not just cultural appropriation but also racism and that is evidenced by exactly you know the stories you two have both just told about how cooking and and how like food is very much like a part of your like daily identity like and it it makes sense to me that the reaction from the, the 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 establishment food media and people in the industry was so sort of tone deaf. Like, I I understand that they might not be able to understand that, but it, they also I couldn't help but think like they needed to just shut up. Yes. Like they it was sort <laughs> of like I don't know how how do you feel about people talking when they they don't really know what they're talking about or or how do we overcome how how do how how do we educate people how do we make sure that people understand the the nuances of these issues but there's lots of people who don't know that shutting up is an option like they could yes. just be quiet yes. and like retweet people maybe sorry that was you know that's a little <laughs> bit of a it was a bit of a silly thing to say i mean i'm i'm being slightly facetious but you know what i mean it's like it was sort of like your opinion is is not the most important right now, and I I felt like some people were unable to understand that, and I that you know. Well, uh, partly that's a reflection of how it works, and that some mm. people feel that their opinion and their position is the most important, and therefore, irrespective of whether they have a full understanding of the situation, they have a right to comment on it, whether they're mm. adding something helpful or not. Yeah, um, yeah of course. Yeah. <laughs> I think. In terms of like, how do we help? Like, it's it's one of the the kind of slightly cliche saying in in therapy that um, it's very simple, but it's not easy. We have to talk to each other, and we have to face realities that are here. Like, all of this discussion has been about how hard everybody worked to avoid the reality of what was happening because it was too uncomfortable or too painful. But we need 
fundamentally to get comfortable with discomfort. Mm. And we need to be able to tolerate that discomfort long enough to hear what other people are saying so that we can then come to some sort of, not even negotiation, but like just a mutual respect for each other's position and an agreement that we need to keep working on this. And I think that's the other thing. People want very simple solutions. So we want, well, so-and-so has been fired or so-and-so has been has apologised and so lovely we can all go back to being friends again. Well, no, because actually we have deep, deep biases um, that humans innately recoil from anything that is different. And that's the foundation, that's the neurological basis of, of racism and uh, homophobia and um, disability prejudice, that we are natural kind of innate instinct is to step back from something that's unfamiliar. So it has to be a conscious effort. We need to use that human part of us, that kind of prefrontal, highly developed part of us to step forward and say, I'm gonna not fall back into my default position. I'm gonna recognize that this is something that I do and that I'm going to step forward and engage with this consciously and deliberately. We have to just all be doing that a lot more. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's a like there's also a fine line between and I'm still trying to negotiate this as well, um, between um educating and and being heard or people listening to you. Like I, I it's it's you wanna be heard and you're and, and from my perspective, I want to be heard. I'm more than happy to to give my side of the story or explain how things are, but I don't want to be the educator. And I think the difference is, is that the educator, it ends up, the responsibility ends up being on the educator. Mm-hmm. And so therefore the person learning is, is, is um, 
only going to learn if the educator teaches them as opposed to being a, an active listener. And I think there's some that that's also a bit that gets that's important to distinguish. Yeah, and you become gatekeepers of definitions yeah. and stuff. And that that is that you know that not only is that an immense responsibility, it's yeah. also like, well, I never signed up for this. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm yeah. doing my best to put put an argument forward or, or whatever, but it's you know, go and do your homework. Yeah. As 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 well, I think that that to me is part of the solution. It also makes the kind of false assumption that every member of a particular group has the same experience of membership of that group. Mm. So, you know, so if we have the black spokesperson that they speak for all black people across the diaspora and, and that they have something meaningful to say about every aspect of that and, and that's just untrue. Again, that's another kind of categorical statement. It's just, well, I'm seeing you all as the same, so one person is as good as anybody else. Whereas actually we need to know that there are a variety of experiences within a group, whatever that group might be, and that we need to be willing to listen to that plethora of voices. For sure, and that was actually one of the one of the the difficulties, if you can call it that, in the aftermath of, of this event for me in writing about it was that there were some quite high profile Southeast Asian people who evidently were not bothered by it. Mm. And that that presented some questions for me, like, I, I you know, I, I, I was wondering why, I was, key, you know, I asked them and they, they actually didn't, there was no response, but that, that presented some, some, some issues and there are then people who, who don't want it to be an issue, who actually aren't personally affected, use those instances and those cases to justify that it isn't a big deal. And that, you know, that is, that's unhelpful. Or... It, it was unhelpful in that situation when it when it certainly seems like it's a big deal. But how how do we deal with that? I mean, how I mean, I guess we accept that they're, you know, like you say, membership members of different groups have different experiences of that membership. And and there's a way in which if if you've always, as a person of color in a white dominant society, you're very visible. Right? And so when a racist issue or an, an act of racism erupts in a way that in the food industry, certainly that this did or in a kind of broader, you become hyper visual and you suddenly realise that everyone wants a comment from you or is expecting you to have an opinion on things or wants mm. you. And we might, you might just assume that for a lot of people that that in itself is painful. Having this kind mm. of resurrection of this how ongoing this experience is and you know opening your social media feed and finding people having these intense debates about whether it's legitimate or not is painful and they might just want to step back from it they might just want to say i can't you know. to be clear i wasn't like contacting like that is not what i was doing this is you know i'm no, thinking I mean, a specific example of someone I actually knew who's who you know definitely sure. would have had a view and I was you know I, I was just sure. keen to understand I wasn't... sure absolutely and and there's a way that you know sometimes people don't necessarily want to identify it sounds strange but you know irrespective of whether they objectively identify with that culture they might not necessarily want to psychologically identify mm. with mm. it at the same time yeah, of course. and so that can be quite a difficult um, thing to kind of reckon with I wonder if this particular incident is also is linked with it, it being the Southeast Asian 
community, which is which is an and East Asian community as well, is seen as the model minority. Mm-hmm. You know, really, you're taught to be well behaved. You don't cause a fuss, um, and and I think. And, and that's also possibly why for two years it didn't get brought up, you know, or didn't get raised. And then there are possibly people who, who, uh, yeah, don't, don't want to cause a fuss or don't, and, and that's mm. kind of, I get that and it's, it's okay in that, in that sense. Um, but also, but for me, it was really, um, empowering to see so much of the Southeast Asian community suddenly go, fuck this, no, I've had enough. And, and there being a strength in that. Mm. Um, so what I take away from all of this is like, yeah, a real sense of, yeah, okay, okay, we, we do have a voice, but there is a, there is something that can be said and we, we are confident in suddenly realizing that there is a bigger part. I think well, one thing which I think really positive, which came out of it, um, was, um, one of the people who actually flagged the um, racism publicly in the first place on the day that it all came out. Uh, David J. Poor, he did a, um, he was doing this all on Instagram stories and he just asked his followers to tell them what, tell him what this meant to them and their experiences of racism within the food industry or within their own lives. And he put them all up on like a series of stories and it was just really, really fascinating to read um, that this was not an isolated incident, that everyone who, who, not just Southeast Asians, but people of colour working within the restaurant industry, had this own story, or their own story of not being taken seriously, or, uh, or casual racism from chefs, um, which they felt that they couldn't sort of that this is like something minor that I can't re- I don't have, there's no way for me to sort of flag this up with someone, but now they, they've got this sort of opportunity to, to tell someone about it. Um, so I think that was a real sort of antidote to sort of people saying that this is an isolated incident. You had, you then had all this testimony mm-hmm. from, from people about why this was an issue. And I think although the uh, the whole episode exposed the myriad shortcomings of Twitter and social media generally, it was also, in term, from a debate debate perspective, um, I think it was it was it was it was you know, and it was one of the reasons Anna why it was sad that yourself and Mimi had to had to like leave the platform was that this is a you know you guys us well, you know the the people who were raising those concerns and detailing their own histories and experiences of racism don't have a national newspaper column they don't mm. have a platform and that's why these these social media outlets can be a force for good when they give people an opportunity to speak and be heard Visibility. um this is yeah this is what i my problem when people say oh twitter's a a bad force or social media is a bad force or everyone should be, um, I mean, even, um, Angela Rayner just said recently that you should ban anonymous accounts. And this is someone quite on the left. Um, that for me, the biggest positive about Twitter, especially as a form of social media is that it's become this forum for people who don't normally have voices to finally 
sort of share their experience. I think like the major thing for me is um, the experience of uh, uh, African Americans being treated by cops in America. That's something which sort of lots of people could very readily sort of um, sort of put in the back of their mind as like this is something that doesn't really happen or they're exaggerating. And then you, you get confronted with like physical evidence that this is happening and it's actually worse than you thought. It's worse than that, that than what they even said was happening. Um, and I mean, I think that physical, I think that goes back to what I was saying right at the beginning, which is that we, it actually, um, why Britain doesn't, deal well with colonialism is because it happened somewhere else mm. and so we don't have to confront it um, and haven't had to confront it other than you know getting sugar on our table and not realizing how that sugar got there but I do think that actually Twitter and social media Twitter in particular I think um, lets you confront the physicality and the realness of that racism and um, that hasn't been ha that hasn't really happened before um, yeah and the thing with with all these issues, I mean, and this is from a, a South Asian uh, perspective, is that, you know, there we were taught not to raise these issues mm. because it is seen as a sign of weakness. And like, so, you know, you just get on with it and this is how you're brave. And, you know, and for a woman especially, mm. you know, it just was not going to happen. And I, I now see a lot of stuff on Twitter where people talk about racism, but the thing that bothers me the most, that's still not happening. I want to talk about the kind of racism within our community. That time hasn't come yet. Within dark-skinned Indians, lighter-skinned Indians, caste, you know, and religion, you know, what they feel about a Muslim or a Catholic, you know, a Buddhist, uh, all these issues. So I, I wait. I, you know, I, I have started this whole process. I always bring race into on the plate as it would be when I talk about my food and who I am and my religion is very obvious something that's very important my faith uh, but yeah it's it's an interesting time I think we live in interesting times because I think you know it is like you know the genie's out of the bottle mm -hmm. what happened with Somsa I think was that literally for me that was that you know moment where it just you know this happened but the fact that we're still talking about it uh, you know, and we're not the chattering class. A lot of people still, wherever I go, people raise this. Uh, what happened to Somsa, you know, about racism. And, you know, it's sad that it is linked to a restaurant. I mean, that's unfortunate because I think it's happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. And people are just getting away with it because it's not been picked up uh, and it's not visible. There's not like a video, you know, something that is said to you, you know, behind the pass, mm -hmm. in passing, attitudes, looks. Yeah. Uh, a look can just destroy you yeah. and that's the thing that there's no evidence of that I mean the thing with Sean of course is that you know we had tons of evidence I definitely think that um, social media had a really important you know we, we got hammered here but but I think that you know right, rightly the issue got raised on social media and social media is the right platform to raise issues that were particularly for underrepresented people I think the difficulty I think from my perspective, from our perspective, most of the things that we've learned have been from conversations though. Like the very difficult part is, you know, this this gets raised on social media, but then 
do you wade in on social media and try and have a conversation about mm. this in order to try and learn about it? And that's just not the right forum. It just deviates to, as you say, either the extremes of people who assume the best of you or assume the worst of you and into sound bites. And actually, we've been on a journey and I've been on a journey of learning from the point at which this happened to the point where we are now. And even over a period of sort of five days from day one when this kicked off, I had kind of one idea of it. And day five, I had a different idea of it. And if you waded social media and gave all your thoughts then mm. uh, on day one, you'd be digging yourself you'd dig yourself a hole or you wouldn't have had time to talk to think about it and talk about and all the things that you know have advanced my understanding of it or made me think about it more have been through actual conversations with people be it Anna or or David who was mentioned earlier or or Liz or so on various people and people who have experienced this personally and stuff Um, and I do think that you know in terms of like where you go where we go from here um there is a lack of conversations to be had about it. Like when I was in the middle of this and thinking, oh, like, you know, this is a nightmare. Like this contradicts our values. You know, this is damaging to the restaurant. Um, this is undermining all that we've done to work so hard. So, you know, you feel naturally cautious about going on, online and trying to, you know, tr- trying to say your piece. But equally... You, you have a need to sort of talk to people about it and to try and say, well, look, you know, tell me what I got wrong here. Tell me how you see it. Um, and even in terms of like what we do now and where we, where we, you know, what we should learn from it and what things people want to see from us to make, to help undo some of that damage. Um, you know, I, I, I would really appreciate, appreciate those conversations and there aren't that many forums in which you can have them. Like this has been really helpful, but if I wanted to go and, talk to someone about um you know who, who's closer to this these issues you know w- without this kind of forum like where would I go and who would I talk to and you know if you want to make changes to the way that the restaurant works like who's going to give you advice on that um you can try, try and learn it and read and stuff but it, but conversations are so so helpful can I ask is there anything that you felt you learned from conversations with your own staff in the aftermath of the event because obviously you you employ Thai people but also you've got a lot of people who were like day-to-day working with Sean and was there a perspective that came out afterwards that you were unaware of before all this happened? Yeah I think certainly like um, both in terms of staff and in terms of like people online um, who I've spoken to who were who were close to this and offended by it and um, one of the things that was surprising to me was to hear that one or two people had actually personally mentioned it to Sean in a, in a kind of serious way not like Sean what are you doing you think it's like in a kind of casual way where like Sean you're an idiot but like saying actually Sean like you know this is you're, you're gonna you know you're gonna really offend people here and that he that he you know I, I can't say what he'd said but but that actually had been raised um, by one or two people, and that's a kind of sad thing for for us. I mean, obviously, there's a personal level of like, you know, why do we not notice it, pick up on it, chaps um, earlier? But but also like, oh, we've maybe missed an opportunity there to hear someone's opinion who would have crystallised our understanding. You know, your media is a you know, you don't when this um, blew up on online, you know, and people were highlighting certain posts and saying you know and, and commenting on it and you're like you know you have a kind of epiphany you're like you know obviously you realize it was offensive before but you didn't realize quite how hurtful it was and how personal it was to people and how 
you know, on top of like not seeing certain bits of content, seeing them again with someone commenting on them about how personally it hurt them is, you know, is something I, sh you know, should have been able to imagine, but it really helped to hear people say it. That, that's definitely where it came, became very real for us. Um, and so, yeah, some of those things, some of those conversations with staff and, and with other people, I was sort of surprised to hear that, oh, it had been picked up and, and maybe wished that, you know, we'd, it had been picked up in a different way or we'd, we'd had a mechanism for it being picked up. Or something. So I'm sort of kind of fascinated that no one, it seems like people did tell Sean that his videos were offensive um, but I'm kind of fascinated that no one, it seems like he wouldn't listen to anyone unless they were someone important. I, I feel like if someone from, whether it's Somersar Management or someone else in the food industry who like commands, who would have commanded his respect and told him, look, you've got to stop this, he probably would have not, probably would have stopped it. I, I mean, I'm assuming a lot about him, but... Um, I do feel that's the case. Like if, if someone, if I did his boss or a, a good friend had said, look, you've got to, you've got to um, sort of think about your job or even if it wasn't framed in like, this is offensive, but like you should think about like how this reflects on your employers, um, then this could have sort of been nipped in the bud slightly. But it seems that sort of no one did in two years. And I'm not saying it's it, like the, ma the management's fault entirely, but there's this mm. no one in the community thought to thought to tell him right but is, isn't this is this is the the conversation about like which which Kim Lee was saying is this uh well if no one else like white male British they're not gonna stand up and be like that guy's racist if all if no one else who if other people who follow him are Asian haven't picked it up. I'm not going to stand up and say it's racist. Like, and then I think it. It, it seems that there was a collective reluctance to sort of yeah. acknowledge and be the first like, one to stand up. I mean, I think that's evidenced by the reaction when it finally was mm. brought out. It was like <laughs> then everyone else kind of was like, you know, yeah, this is super bad. But I, I think you raised the point about permission, right? It's like. Mm. Do white people feel they have permission to step in on behalf of racism or yeah. on a minority? Um, so just for clarity, yeah, you do. <laughs> I think for um, I think for many white people, the, the problem is that the worst thing you can like consider something happening to you is to be accused of racism, not for racism happening to you. Like the yes, worst yes, thing yes. is to be accused of racism. So no one wants to do that to. To someone, to someone else, else or but, even like imply that they might be racist but the thing is that you know as we're having this conversation i will also you know feel that you know for those who actually i don't think there are people who get what they're doing what i it made me think and i think all of us should think about this is that when someone is just so out of it mm. and has not got it and clearly not still got it, uh, you know, what do we do? Because, you know, you don't educate, you know, there's this, this thing that, you know, you can't educate someone. But I just try to think that, you know, 
what if this was my my child? What if this was my brother or my sister or my sibling? Would I? How would I have tried to, you know, get some of this light through their soul that you know you don't do this, you don't do this to other people? It's just something. I know there's no easy answer at all, mm. and it's this thing that you know. It's it's that's where we all f- will have to find a way out. You know, it's not that you know. I can't just look at someone and say, you know, your skin, you're so black. They're not the kind of things people say. They say something so subtle mm. that you even they say it and you walk away. It's at night you wake up and you think, did they say that to me? That is what is difficult. That it's happens at this thing. Sometimes you don't even know that someone has said something to you deeply offensive, and you think about it later on. Anyway, it's not it's not an easy answer, but I just thought I'd raise this because it's something. Uh, yeah, that there's another aspect to it. Definitely, one of the most interesting things you've talked to me about, Anna, is this: the way that the kind of like racist language hasn't mm. been codified here mm. and or you know or at least the words that have been there aren't very many like there are certain words that people like know are racist and then but that that's like it's def there's a, there's a sort of linguistic complexity to racism and a, and a bit in the not just linguistics but like general communication like what you were saying asma before about like just things that like people commenting on this, this, the shade of the color of your skin is like, you know, people. That's a, yet another instance of people's failure to understand when they're being racist, and then as soon as they might be accused of being racist or it being a racist thing to do or say, they immediately shut down and, and, and panic because of of the, of the severity of that that perceived accusation. Like what. I can't remember what it was you said to me, but you definitely said something to me about the that kind of process we've got to go through in kind of codifying racist language. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is asking questions or, or being okay to sort of sometimes just say something and, you know, sit with your uncomfortableness is a really great way of it, as you were saying. But the, the, one of the, there was a couple of things in this um, debate that happened, but it happens elsewhere, is the use of things like mob and lynch mob, which people the weight of language has, you know, a history that um, is really important to understand when talking about racism. And to be open to someone correcting you and saying, actually, you can't use mob and you can't use, especially not lynch mob, which is what people were saying, you know, referring to Somsar and the team there and saying, you know, like Andy and Somsar are sort of having a mob after them and being lynched. And of course, at best, that is referring to the America and Jim Crow and people being hunted down and hung and killed. So at worst, it's about killing someone. At best, it's referring to people as hysterical and not to be taken seriously. So none of that is good. So just like, just don't use that language. And if someone says to you, hey, don't use that language, be okay with that. Um, and I think that's that doesn't happen so much but there's also words like um the word offense is is really problematic because it puts the responsibility on the the sort of the victim and saying well you know it's not you know 
I can... Adam, you can wear a fluorescent jumper that offends my eyes on a really sunny day and I feel offense, offensive by it because it's, you know, hurting me. That's not going to change, you know, um, that, that offense is not going to change my whole identity and being. But um, racism is not an offense. It's, it's hurt and pain. And so there was a lot of people saying, I'm sorry I offended which is not actually what they did. It's, it's, it should be, I'm sorry, I hurt you. Um, but the sentiment that they're trying to express can actually be the same thing. They're just using the wrong, wrong words. Way. Absolutely. And that's, and that's the point is like learning, how, learning that language and being okay with being told actually, you know, nuances in this very complicated space, nuances is important. Um, and which is actually one of the things I, one of the first things I said yeah. to you was I got got in touch with you, Andy, and said that apology you've sent is it's, I think I know what you're trying to mean. This is what it means. Yeah. But and, and, yeah, you, no, li- and you listened I, to it. That no, was fine. I, no, I get it. Was, no, I get and it. and I think um, and um, I think that is we've still got to learn that language. It's still a yeah. process we all have I, to go through together. Definitely, one thing I've you know come to understand is that because of the way in which Britain. You know, and, and and not not just Britain, but Britain especially moves so slowly on issues such as this, and has been e- unable to confront it in a, in any meaningful way. Like as soon as episodes like this happen, and we start to have debates like this, like you you can accelerate the kind of the the new definition of like terms and people, it, or or at least it's it becomes mainstream. Like you know. The, the the specific meaning and the problems with, for example, offence that that is that is known to the people who, for whom that is a problem, mm. and yet more in a, in for the for, for the for everybody else suddenly, and again they retreat because they're like, oh my god, what what, what this is the, this is the next PC thing that I now you know I'm going to get tripped up by. They they, they all, they're all people sort of seem to think that they're the system is 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 is, is stacked against them. Yeah, um, and I think that 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 certainly present the, the when you begin to uh, accelerate like when you when you have progress or things become more progressive, it it, it, it can it can confuse people. Yeah, like the the goalposts are changing, yeah. and nobody's telling anybody yeah, what yeah. the rules are. Yeah, but that's why it's a negotiation, isn't mm. it? It's like and and why I think we need to have a degree of well willingness to listen a touch of benefit of the doubt you know you can't assume that everyone is intentionally and always unceasingly an asshole like you can't, <laughs> it's it's not a good position with which to go into the world and whilst you need to be able to i think face reality and be honest and be unblinking in in the face of it i think we also need to be prepared to listen when someone apologizes because you can't you can't attack someone and then you know make a condemnation of them and then give them no path to redemption because that just creates a class of people who are outcast and angry and resentful and a class of people who are then by extension by definition the accusers Mm. you know there needs to be a way in which we can meaningfully express remorse express genuine uh, sorrow and sadness for for our wrongdoings and then kind of come back (laughs) into society um otherwise we're literally just perpetuating pain like just throwing the ball 
yeah. back and forth to one another. Yeah. But I think that one of the reasons, if you have to also, uh, there's a lot of kind of self-examination in these kind of situations because, uh, I know, I, I, especially I'm, I'm, as an Asian uh, woman, you know, in many situations, I, I hold back and I try and think that, you know, how have I done something similar? You know, what would I do? Uh, what have I done? And this is because it's really important for me to know. And this whole forgiveness is very, very important. Yeah. Because I think this, you know, uh, we will just poison the waters. We will never be able to move on. Yeah. And, you know, just like we are all different, you know, colors, people sitting here joking. This, this is reality. This is how it's going to be. It's going to be like this till we die. So, you know, the whole idea that, you know, you 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 attack someone and you hold back and I'm this and I'm that. I think that, you know, there has to, we have to let go a little bit. But, you know, racism, bigotry, all of this aside. But some somewhere you've got to let go because for me, that bridge is so important. That links people together. And that will not happen if you always, always have this poisonous discussion all the time. So there is there is space to forgive. Yeah, and that's what I th- that's what I think. Like uh, saying that you know we've got to work through the language kind of together, and and it's made this whole this whole incident has made me rethink racism for for me. You know, like I've had to think about what does feel racist. How do I understand racism? Yeah. Um, and that self examination is really important. And empathetic. You were talking about empathy before. Um, Jonathan, and I think that's kind of the key, sort of, you know, like other people being empathetic to, to avoid racism, but also the other way around, I think, is it, yeah. I think that, um, I think that you can't give forgiveness to anyone unless they make some concrete, mm. like, yeah. decision, mm-hmm. of obviously, course. Yeah, to, of to sort of make some outreach. Yeah, it's really interesting that Sean has sent you something, and I hope mm. he, he's sent other people things as well because um, I don't think he's obviously I think no one no one's beyond forgiveness but um, so when I when this all came out like I had a very interesting discussion with someone close to me who is Southeast Asian and he had a very interesting response he he was like this is just like sophomore stuff like completely childish and he he wasn't offended and he was he sort of going back to the discussion earlier about some Southeast Asians not being offended. He said, "I'm not offended, but I'm interested as to why I'm not offended." And his he had just sort of seen the Instagram posts, and he he was like, "I think he said this is just like so childish. I can't be Engaged. offended by it." And it seems like there is this like childish mentality that he had, like with his sort of sense of humor and. Um, and sort of echoing what, what exactly you said what about it as well. That he, what he wrote to me saying that, you know, I was never mocking you, I respect you. I just thought this might be something that you might find funny. And I always said the same thing to you. It was true. He always said the same joke to me every time. It was always about Chilis. I think it's interesting to talk about, there is a bit of a, like, theme of uh, sense of humour in what Sean done. I mean, what his content, right? Like, don't get me wrong, it's racist. We, we all mm. work, and mm. it's, you know, 
hurtful, all, all of those things. But it is interesting to think like where where was he actually coming from? I mean, he was trying to be funny. It was yeah. like kind of and like South kind of, Park. There is, yeah, this kind of like hipster ironic parody type. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not the one to speak for Sean, but like, I think there is that kind of interesting theme and where like that sometimes racism can be tangled up in what is a kind of hipster sense of humour and that is another veil in which it like somehow you know gives you another level of cognitive dissonance well white people don't do this to white people that's the problem no I mean uh, yeah I'm not not saying like that makes it okay I'm just saying I'm trying to understand his motivations and I'm trying to understand like why, why did we not call out? And I think like part of it is this, is the things we've already talked yeah, about. Yeah, you didn't part think of it he was is being like, serious. If you would, uh, my guess is if you, you know if you talked to Sean about this, he would have been like, "It would be like, oh, you're so fucking stupid for thinking this is racist, you idiot." Like that yeah, would be his response. I did, and and that and that kind of gives you that like throws it that throws people off balance mm, mm. Um, because they're like, "Oh, it's a it's a double bluff," and then like I must be the stupid one for thinking. The, the it's thing racist. is, and it, it absolutely it reminds me of. That you know, it's not in any way the same, but there's some similar themes. When, when Brewdog did that pink IPA, oh yes, which yeah. you know, just you know, taking se- <laughs> taking sexist tropes, trying to create a beer in the name of satire, and you know, I think one of the things that we wrote at the time was like they had to spell out that it was satirical. Yeah. Like that, that sort of misses the point of satire. <laughs> like you know, yeah. like that, like there's there's a sort of fundamental part of like comedy that I don't know. You, you, you don't, yeah. When you have to explain the joke, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. No, nobody no one gets it. No, 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 no. It's no, just no, a question no. of what the intention, the intention of the and and the original yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, but all all this. One of the things I sort of learned this is intention was like kind of my first. Right, my my first reaction to this, like, like I my idea of Sean was that he wasn't a racist. Yeah. And and Mimi messaged me, and like I actually knew Mimi, and you know she messaged me, and we had like a quick conversation, and I was like, look, I'm gonna, you know, I, this is bad, and I'm gonna say to Sean that you should apologise, but I don't think he's a racist. Mm. You know that's what, I, and um, because I didn't think he was a racist, and I thought he was a racist, I would have fired him. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and. But intended, but anyway, like, so, I, you know, my ideas are sort of tied up in kind of like, what's John's intention, what are my intentions, and you can easily hide behind those, like, I believe my intentions are good, and therefore, like, I mustn't have done anything yeah. wrong, and equally, I don't think Sean's a racist, and therefore, um, this can't be racist content, right, but one of the things I learned through that is it doesn't actually matter, you have to put that to the side, like, if you hurt people, offend people, marginalise people, then it it is what it says on the tin, it is racism. And that's what Sean really needs to understand about this, and I hope that he does, is that, like, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter, like, what you thought you thought you were saying. I'm probably also repeating myself here as well, but that definitely was one of the things that I felt about the aftermath, that it, it almost seemed like the, dis- the people that were refusing to hear it, it was like their opinion mattered more than, like, the victim's. And it was, all I could think was, if, if the victims say it's this, like, why, why can't we just accept that that, that, that is a truth? Like, why, why, does, why, do, why does the constituent, constituency of the, of the industry feel that 
they need to dispute that as a as a as a, as a reality. It felt that's the biggest problem. That you know, it it's a huge, it's a signal to all of us that you know, it's gonna be us next. So I I know mm. that you know when when you will raise these issues, you know we will again be seen hushed down as the kind of you know uh, the fringe. Mm. We are not the fringe, but the problem is this: this was treated like that. That this is the kind of fringe hysterical fringe on the side and this hysterical fringe on the side for people of color is the you know deep historical problems with that as well mm. because this is how we were dealt you know for a long time i think everyone like everyone most people understand obvious racism right they understand the bmp they understand people being yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and, yeah. and and most people are against that right that you see someone racially abusing someone in the street you yeah. think you're a good person, you know, you know that that's wrong, right? But then, you know, this this level, I think you, you it can only be a very short conversation with someone, but you need a conversation with someone to sit down and have someone look you in the eye and say, oh, you know what, like, this is what's happened to me all my life, and this is why when you say this, these things, it really hurts. And it doesn't just hurt, like, in reference to what you're saying, it hurts in reference to everything that's gone before. It's like a wound, right? And you're putting a your finger yeah. in it and and until someone says that to you you can understand racism only like okay some more intelligent people than me understood that already but I needed someone to tell me that before I understood but I think it, what like in that. a way what Adam was, Adam was saying was those people like lots of people were saying that in a very concise um chilled out way sure on social media but still um and there was there were a number of people <laughs> who were in contact with me, who were, like, refusing to hear that. Mm. Right? Like, they were yeah. just like, but no. But, no. <laughs> yeah. but this is where we get into the relative value of your opinion, isn't it? So, yes, in the so, position of, like, power, right? Yeah, so you can be yeah. sitting there screaming, like, this mm. is racist, but if you're not, if you're not given the validity of your position, mm. then it doesn't matter what you say. And this is the implicit part of it it's you can, you can be sitting here telling me it's racist but if i don't see you as an equal to me then i'm not going to take your opinion seriously yeah and i think that is that the is structural and that is yeah the, that has that's to where do media with, comes yeah, in yeah 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 that's who we are yeah everything's about yeah. that that's why it was so important for important voices to come out against this on twitter and why it was frustrating that not that many food writers did uh, for chefs, I mean, you were one of the most prominent voices um, among white chefs. I think Callum Franklin yeah. wrote something very, um, just very like unambiguously, this is racist and like, you're all right. Um, but very few people did that. Mm. Like, but it's so surprising. Mm. It was is just. Yes. I was I was surprised. And, and like I work with a lot of people. Again, it's the same thing. I work with a lot of people in the industry, um, and have over the years, people who I think have been my supporters and they just Yeah, didn't. Yeah. Thank you. As as we've been talking over the last ten minutes, it seems to me that there is a disconnect between like the, the the levels of understanding of those who are victim to this kind of thing, um, you know, like people like absolutely like yourselves, and 
it seems that the the understanding and the like the, the, the conversation and the definitions and the debate is advanced at a, at a different rate to the people who are not personally affected by it and i think that was that it was it was that meeting of two different sets of people being at very different stages of a, mm. of, of the understanding of an issue that caused such a, a problem in the aftermath of it and that's why as well it was so upsetting that it was there was a reluctance to learn while I while I, while I, you sort of can pinpoint the reason why they might not necessarily have known as much it was like the the, the depressing thing was that there was a, a lack of willingness to hit to listen and I think you know Kimberly you've emphasized the need for dialogue and for people to be given opportunities to learn more and my hope is that that is you know how we how we come out of this ultimately and we can kind of carry on having these conversations, like we said at the, at the panel. It's hopefully just the beginning of beginning of this, not not the not the end. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 